it's it's really great to be be worshiping out here with all of you and then see see a couple leaves fall occasionally right it's almost like it's fall or something i see where it gets the name but i mean come on isn't it it's great to be in new england in the fall isn't it it's gorgeous so uh this morning we're going to be in matthew 5 verses 21 to 26 matthew 5 verses 21 to 26 we are in uh, starting to get to the good part of the Sermon on the Mount, as Stephen just preached, the part where uh, Jesus starts to say some things that we might not like, <laughs> but is, is really good for our hearts. So, Matthew five twenty one through 26. Let me start this off with an example that I'm sure no one here has ever had any issue with, and that is road rage. Road rage. Say that three times fast. <laughs> Road rage, especially in the Boston area, seems to be a very common issue. I'm talking about aggressive honking. I'm talking about tailgating. uh, I'm talking illegal maneuvers. Whether you just got your driver's license or if you have been on the road your entire life, uh, everyone is bound to experience a little road rage. Don't want to take my word for it. Here are some statistics. 80% of drivers say that they experience road rage with 56% of men and 44% of women saying that they experience it daily. 50% of people say that they respond to road rage with road rage themselves. Never-ending cycle. Road rage is the leading cause of traffic accidents and 66% of traffic fatalities and 30 murders per year occur because of road rage. Now, as I read those statistics... I'm sure uh, the following thoughts went through your head as they went through mine. Thoughts such as, I'm not really an angry person. I wouldn't call what I do road rage, per se. Or, I don't even know if I would consider what I do tailgating. I don't even really get that close. Or, sure, I sped by them really fast, but they were really going slow in the left lane. That's the passing lane. Or, okay, so maybe I called that slow driver a not-so-nice word, but he was going really slow, and I'm late for an appointment. At least I didn't run him off the road. So the Lord has to weigh our hearts in these matters. And I use this very specific example of road rage because I myself struggle with it on a daily basis. I don't honk excessively. I don't try to run people off the road, and I barely speed. But if I'm in the left-hand lane and I'm late for something, normally because I left late, and someone's going a little slower than I'd like, maybe I'll get a little frustrated. Maybe I'll get a little upset. But again, it's normally because I'm late for something. Even though it's no one's fault but my own that I'm running late, it can be really easy for me to shift the blame to someone else driving slow, even though they're going the speed limit, right? I'm sure a lot of you can relate to me on this because in Massachusetts, drivers are known to be less than courteous on the road. But what I've come to experience is that my frustration on the road has less to do with excuses that I can come up with and more with entitlement and pride in my heart. Something like, I'm not going to take the blame for being late, even though I left late, because this person is slow in front of me. It's really easy to blame them. Jesus is going to teach us about anger today in this section on Sermon on the Mount and why it's so much more than just having a screaming fit or punching a hole in a drywall. Anger is so much more than that. Anger has to do with the hatred in our hearts caused by pride and entitlement 
which is called murder. Murder. It's really important to see God's heart here. This Sermon on the Mount is a fantastic way to see what is valued by God and what is important to Him. He fulfills the law in this way by applying it to our hearts because our hearts are what's important to Him. Listen to these two uh, verses from the Psalms. Psalms 4 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Psalm 12 said, every, man, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord weighs our hearts because our actions in life flow from it. It carries who we are and what we do. And as we'll see in this upcoming section, God cares about how we treat others because it shows our hearts. His demands are high because he cares for us and he cares for others. Jesus teaches us how to be a disciple of him and how to follow his example by purifying our hearts of anger and choosing to love him and others rather than justify our hate with pride. Let me say that one more time. Jesus teaches us how to be a disciple of him and how to follow his example by purifying our hearts of anger and choosing to love him and others rather than justify our hate with pride. Let's jump right into the text, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, become reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I don't know if this was your first thought when I read that, but my first thought was, man, I have called people a lot worse things than fools. All right, first off, in this section, you get the classic Jesus Sermon on the Mount saying that we are going to hear a lot in this sermon, which is, you have heard that it was said. This is him referring to the Old Testament law. And considering that murder is one of the Ten Commandments uh, that is written in Exodus 20, it's one that his audience would have been familiar with, as we are familiar with. We will see here in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is directly confronting the application of the law and how it relates to our hearts. During Jesus' time, there was a religious group known as the Pharisees. You've never heard of them before, right? (laughs) They sought to make the law more specific in order to make it both easier to follow, but then also easier to judge according to it and redefine success according to it. Let me give an example that's not murder. The law says to rest on the Sabbath because God rested on his seventh day of creation. The Pharisees, seeking to make that more specific and easier to redefine success, made limits for how much work one could do on the Sabbath. They said, you cannot walk more than 1,000 yards. You cannot write more than one word. They actually did that. And those things would constitute, in the Pharisees' mind, breaking the commandment of resting on the Sabbath. For a modern-day example, 
Let's imagine that our church offered two services, one in the morning and one in the evening. The Pharisees might change that law to say that one can only attend the morning service because the mind is more attentive in the morning or something like that. The only real law is that we must gather together for worship and encouragement, but the Pharisees would want to make it more specific to make it easier to judge and therefore easier for someone to be labeled a success or a failure. Even though if you go to the evening service, you're still worshiping, you're still encouraging, but you will be defined a failure because that's how the Pharisees defined resting. That's how the Pharisees would describe worship. How did Jesus respond to this misapplication of the Sabbath law? There are several examples of Jesus being confronted over his alleged misuse of the Sabbath. And one specifically in Luke 14, he heals a man in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. He asks the Pharisees if they think it's lawful for him to heal on the Sabbath. And after they don't respond, Jesus says this, Which one of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They cannot respond to these things. The law was made for us as a loving act of God rather than strict penalties for us to follow. Just like rules in a football game are put in place to protect the players and encourage safe play, they're guardrails rather than pig pens. The laws are guardrails rather than pig pens. They keep us from danger, from pain, and from hurting others. They lead us to joy. Or as Jesus also said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or in other words, the laws were made for your benefit, not to be senselessly appeased. But why am I talking about the Sabbath? This is a sermon about murder, after all, and anger. But I use that law in the Pharisees slash Jesus' response to provide context for why Jesus needed to say these things. The law was formed to protect our hearts and make us more like Christ. That was something that the Pharisees tried to manipulate, making it a contest rather than protection. Now with that context, we're able to see why Jesus is expanding upon or fulfilling the laws that were given before. They needed to be expanded because their purpose was being misunderstood and manipulated. Jesus' commands look towards the heart, to the truth that hatred and anger are precursors to murder. Precursors to murder. And since they are precursors to sin, they should not be a part of a Christian's heart. No part of sin should be a part of our hearts. Not the precursor, not the action, not the excuse that comes afterwards. We need to be protected from all of it, beginning to end. So Jesus specifies the command of do not murder, not like the Pharisees, which is cold and unloving, but as God, a loving and kind Father. If the Pharisees were to specify murder, it would probably be along the lines of do not speak more than three insults per day or make sure your apology is 10 minutes long. That's not loving. That doesn't have the intention of protecting our hearts. It has the intention of feeling pride based on accomplishments. What is loving, what is kind, is refraining from insulting your neighbor and feeling anger towards them and to put reconciliation as a priority. That's the love that Christ had for us, and we cannot do that with an angry heart. The guardrails of this law prevent us from falling over the cliff of hatred, murder, and spiritual death. So let's get into the meat of this section, which is Jesus' commands of us. Let's read the first few verses again. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's first important to note that which might be easily overlooked. Jesus condemns murdering people. Might be a little obvious that he would, but it's important to say nonetheless. This is not a vengeful God that calls upon you to kill your enemies. It's not who Jesus is. In our first verse, verse 27, Jesus agrees with the teaching of old, which is saying that we shouldn't murder one another. As previously mentioned, murder was one of the Ten Commandments. It's also mentioned in Leviticus with the penalty of death. But before we get into murder, it's important to make some important distinctions. What is murder versus what is killing? Because if you are a seasoned veteran of reading the Bible and you've read plenty of the Old Testament, you might say, Neil, the Old Testament is pretty violent. There's a lot of killing in there and a lot of killing that God seems to command. God seems to command Israel to go to war with other nations, to kill members of the other nation. So how do you justify that? Isn't that murder? No. During that time, the Lord used Israel as his sword to execute judgment. Israel was God's chosen nation, a political entity, kind of like the worldwide church today as God's chosen people. God was king over Israel, king over that nation, and used that nation to deliver his judgment righteously using war. Even though the Israelites may not have done that very well a lot of the times because they are sinful just like us, that was their intention. God used war to execute his judgment to the earth. Now, as the church, we are very, very different than Israel. The church is a family, not a political entity. We are a group of brothers and sisters under the fatherhood of the Father, and we are the bride of Christ. The ability for God's chosen people, then Israel, now the church, to execute judgment on behalf of God has passed. It's over. The church does not have the responsibility to execute judgment. I cannot come to Stephen and say, this person has wronged me, please execute them. Stephen would say, you're crazy, we don't do that. That's not what the church does. The responsibility now to execute judgment has been passed over to the government. Listen to Paul say in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Even though we may not feel at times that the government is an avenger and put in place by God to protect us and execute his judgment rightly, that's its intended purpose. Unfortunately, it is run by sinful people just like you and me who tend to follow instructions the wrong way, just like Israel often did when executing God's judgment in war. So if justified killing is okay based on God's commands and the timely roles of Israel and the government, then what is murder and why is that not okay? Murder is described in our English dictionary as the unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. When looking at Jesus' description of murder in our passage today, it seems like our English definition is a little light. 
Jesus fulfills and expands upon the OT law, the Old Testament law, that we should not murder, expanding it to include anger and insults and hating your brother. Being angry towards someone else is a precursor to unlawful premeditated killing, so therefore it is murder. Remember that Jesus' laws here are meant to protect us from unjustly killing one another. So we must be protected by the anger in our hearts. Psalm 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Anger fuels strife and fights, while patience diffuses it. It's not just unjustly killing each other that we need to be protected from. It's also fights and disagreements which may lead to murder in our heart or otherwise that might be protected. Just like steam comes from boiling water, murder comes from our hearts overflowing with boiling hatred towards others. Instead of saying, stop the steam, Jesus says to turn off the heat completely. Insults like you fool, as Jesus mentioned, but also any form of verbal abuse are unacceptable for Christians. Why is this such a big deal, you may think? Because the words that our tongues say show the state of our hearts. Even if we think we may not mean it, we just say, oh, that's just a word I say. It doesn't mean anything. Insults don't come from nowhere. They come from our hearts. James explains upon the tongue in James 3. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. So just as a saltwater spring produces salt water, a murderous heart produces a tongue with murderous words. A heart that produces insults cannot be a heart which sees another person as holy and wonderfully made in the image of God. That heart cannot see another person as someone who should be lifted up to Christ. That heart cannot truly love another person as we have been commanded and loved ourselves by Christ. We need to follow the example of Christ here as well as he preaches not just in words, but also by example. He is a holy God completely set apart. He commands peace from us and created this world to live in harmony. But sin entered this world and hasn't relented since. Christ has righteous anger because his creation has sinned against him. That has never transformed to murderous anger. Christ cannot sin. He is holy. Even though we have sinned against God and rightfully deserve death as the judgment, and thus that judgment would be fair and not murder, Peter writes that the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Psalm 130 says the same thing. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus preaches and acts from example. He is the most loving, the most patient, the most gracious. He is literally love. He is forgiveness. 
He is our Lord. Unfortunately, it is really hard for us to follow Christ's example. Really hard. We get prideful, we get entitled, we get frustrated. Maybe you're late for an appointment and the car in front of you isn't driving the speed required or that you'd personally like. Maybe your child just isn't obeying or following rules and keeps being disrespectful and unappreciative towards all you've done for them. Maybe you've had a rough couple of days and haven't been able to complete that homework assignment and the professor or teacher just isn't understanding why you need an, an extension. It's so easy to allow the thoughts of what we don't have fuel our emotions. We don't have the time we need, or we don't have the quality of life we wanted, or we don't have the reaction from another that we wanted. If we focus on what we don't have, it's so easy for us to become entitled or prideful. But the Bible calls us to flip that around and focus on what we do have. Let our emotions be fueled by what we do have. We do have forgiveness from the Lord for our sins, so we can freely forgive others. We do have patience from the Lord when we sin, so we can be patient with others. We do have love from God in all circumstances, so we can love others even when it's easier to be upset with them. The book of Ephesians says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus says in the book of John, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Love others as I have loved you. Remember what we do have in Christ, such as love and forgiveness, and use that to patiently love and forgive others. Another obstacle towards fighting anger and murder in our hearts is that the world always seems to encourage it. It's no stranger to us now that American politics can bring out the worst in our news, our social media, and even our face-to-face interactions. It seems that some view politics as an excuse to relish speaking insults and relish speaking the news in ways that insult others in hate towards another political side. Church, even if you don't personally insult others, but if you listen to channels of information that do, news channels, blogs, people posting on Facebook, etc., please know the impact that that's having on your heart. Their job is to make you angry, to have you see those that have a different political belief as less than or as fools. You cannot listen to others who insult for hours on end and believe that it has no impact on your heart. It's sinful, and sin infects our hearts, mind, and souls. The church cannot be a light of the world if our light is dimmed by angry hearts. And if your first thought is, well, the other side does it too, that's not an excuse. The sins of others don't justify your own. Listen to Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4. Paul writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Church, if the media you consume is full of bitterness, wrath, anger, and slander, then put it away from you. You don't need it. I promise you'll be fine without it. Listen to media that encourages tenderheartedness, encourages love, kindness, and forgiveness. 
Do it for the sake of your own heart. Do it because it's commanded of us. We know the verse in James, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That means that our first reaction when there is a different opinion than ours should not be anger. It should be to listen, really listen. Listen until we understand. We shouldn't speak so quickly and shouldn't go to anger so quickly. We should understand with love and patience. That's what will make the church stand out in love. We want to be known by our love from Christ, not our hate from the devil. Let me say that one more time to make sure it really hits there. We need to be known by our love from Christ, not our hate from the devil. As Christ himself said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let the world see us as different in the way that we love rather than the way we hate. Let the world know that we make an effort to protect our hearts and the hearts of others by refraining from insults and anger. All right. So, according to the word of God, if you speak insults towards your brother, got bad news for you, you're a murderer. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But we'll see in the next few verses here that this is such a high command and importance that Jesus gives us the responsibility to prevent murder by seeking reconciliations with someone, even if they have an issue with us. We're called to prevent murder in other people's hearts as well, not just our own. Look again with me at verses 23 to 26. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, and then etc., etc. So we have this situation where a Christian is going to worship by leaving a gift at the altar, but then he remembers that their friend, for example, uh, is giving them the silent treatment for something like a common misunderstanding. The solution here is for the Christian to go and be reconciled, even though they may or may not have done something wrong. This is related to a lesson that I have had to learn many times, um, and I still personally have trouble learning. Your intention does not unjustify the hurt another person may experience. Let me say that again. Your intention does not unjustify the hurt another person may experience. What I mean by that is if someone's feelings are hurt because of what you may have said, but you didn't mean it in a hurtful way, they're still hurt regardless. Just because you intended something doesn't make that reality. Christians should not be the type of people that say, you're overreacting, or get over it, or that's just how I talk. That's just how I was raised. Statements like that don't make others feel heard, loved, or supported. We're called to encourage one another and build one another up and consider others as greater than ourselves. We can do that by seeking reconciliation and understanding 
regardless of whether or not we feel the other person's hurt is justified or whether it's not easy to listen. And that principle can work the other way as well. The pain that you may feel does not justify sin through insults, passive-aggressive behavior, or retribution. It doesn't. Our calling is to seek reconciliation regardless of whether or not we did wrong or were wronged. Don't wait for your brother to seek reconciliation with you. Go seek reconciliation with him first. It's not about being the bigger man. It's about loving others and obeying God. It shouldn't be so rare that we get special praise for it. It should be expected because it's commanded. Our obedience towards God in this manner glorifies him. As our relationships get mended through love, he blesses us and it leads us to worship. This is yet another way that the church can stand out in love. Let us be a people that doesn't quickly write off the hurt of others. Let us be a people that seeks reconciliation urgently and lovingly because we want God to be glorified in all relationships and others to feel his love through us. This does not simply apply to just small-time accusations and pains either. The final verses in this segment apply directly to legal affairs as well. Jesus commands a type of self-sacrifice and love that is shown both when only a few months' awkwardness is on the line and when a court appearance with big-time consequences are on the line. Just because there are laws and systems to go through, and you might not win it big if you just go and be reconciled, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to value reconciliation more than just a potential court payday. All this is very hard to do, as it's easy for us to laugh at others, to burn bridges, or to be spiteful towards others and write off the pain they experience because they are spiteful to us. But we have a very specific calling to love. Some might say that that's too broad, but when everything falls under the umbrella of love, it's really easy to see. Listen to Paul's exhortation of how loving others should play into conflicts. Paul writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hurting, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Even if that sounds like too much, again, remember Christ's example for us. We were hopelessly in sin. We have an issue with God because we do not want to be holy. Our natural intonation is to sin. We want to keep being angry. I want to keep insulting people on the highway. It's just my natural intonation. But since God cannot sin, and since he is completely holy, he was not and not ever will be in the wrong. He did not need to come to earth in the form of man, Jesus Christ. He came to create reconciliation with us. He did not need to take the penalty for our sins, but he did because he loves us so much and wanted to be reconciled with us. Romans 5 said, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still 
actively against him, he came to be reconciled with us. And he calls us to do the same in this passage and elsewhere, to love others so much that we seek reconciliation in love even to death. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Christ shows us love, and thus he is the only way in which we can show that love to others. We cannot do that on our own. We have to remember his example and his love towards us. That's the only encouragement that can push us forward. When it's really hard to love someone, when we cannot even look them in the eye because of what they've done for us or out of guilt because of what we have done to them, we must remember the holy God that came to us in love and calls us to do the same and blesses us when we do. We've learned a lot about anger and murder today, hopefully in a way that has changed our preconceived notions of what is okay for a Christian to do, what is not okay for a Christian to do, and why. Insults are never justified, and anger is never justified unless it's righteous anger. I haven't brought up righteous anger yet because we should honestly leave that part to God. It is so easy for us to say, oh, I'm, I'm rightfully being angry, when we're really just being angry. Ooh, we're good. We should leave the righteous anger to God who cannot sin. Righteous anger should begin and end with love and forgiveness, as God has had with us while we were yet sinners. Ephesians says to us, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Our anger, if any, should be quick to transform to forgiveness and love because of how the Lord's anger towards us for our sin was quick to transform to forgiveness and love. So quick that the sun doesn't even go down on it. Christ has said in our passage today that there is no excuse for verbal abuse by a Christian. Not if you disagree with them, not if you think they are actively against you, the country, the word of God, not anything. Christ calls us to disagree without hating, listen without insulting, and love without condition. Even if we are insulted, beaten, or even crucified, we are called to follow the loving example of Christ. And what did Christ do in that situation? When he was beaten, crucified, insulted? He simply prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So should our attitude be towards even those who persecute us and especially those who are just simply trying to do what they think is good. This sermon series is all about looking at Christ's words on the Sermon on the Mount and seeing what a disciple is, what we are called to be. The short answer to that question is the verse I mentioned earlier. By this, people will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. Love. The long answers, the more specific answers, are one that we'll see in the coming weeks. Jesus will address lust, retribution, prayer, oaths, generosity, fasting, anxiety, judging others, and a lot more. We'll see again and again that Jesus is concerned with the state of our hearts rather than following the rules in a way that the Pharisees did. 
He speaks these laws to protect our hearts from pain, hurting others, and ruining our witness. And ultimately, he does it to open us up to his glory. So the next time there's unexpected traffic or misbehaving child or a professor that won't understand or another protest in the street, remember that your calling is to avoid anger and insults, avoid murder, and said, love, listen, and understand. Love with the love that's not dependent on other people, it's dependent on you. Christ's love had nothing to do with us. We have done nothing to deserve his love. We have done nothing to earn his forgiveness. Our love for him and others now and following these laws are a reaction to the love that he has given us, not a debt that we must repay. And thus, our love for others should have nothing to do with the way that they treat us or hurt us. That kind of love is one that can love our enemies and even pray for those who persecute us. And then we will be known as disciples of Christ as they see Christ in us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the love and forgiveness and the mercy that you have given us. We thank you so much that you have come to be reconciled with us while we were yet sinners. Lord, help us to seek reconciliation. Help us to seek love and forgiveness and mercy as you have to us. Guide us, Lord. Love us. Let your church stand out in love, Father. Protect our hearts. Keep us from insults. Keep us from murder in our hearts. Guide us towards love. And do it all for the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.